And uh, in that regard, I would like to take this opportunity to thank you all very much for your prayers and thoughts during this time. It's um, really made me feel part of a bigger family, and that's a really marvelous feeling to have and a blessing that we have from God. One of the things you might have noticed about me is that I have a beard. Um, I probably won't have a beard tomorrow morning. <laughs> Mrs. Tastod hates them. And um, if you hear some screaming today from a distance and you think, what's that? She's just seen me at the airport. <laughs> now, um, before we get into the sermon, I just want to mention to you that on the back of your um, sermon notes, there are some questions, which I really, really encourage you to take away and have a look at sometime during the week, because I think they will really provoke us to, to think about God's Word. I'm always terribly offended, actually I'm very sad, when I walk around the church afterwards and I see notes on the floor or left behind, because it means that we've left behind an opportunity to meet with God and His Word. So, please folks, go and do something with these, because they will do something for you. Let's just open in prayer. Father, I humbly ask you that you would empower me today to speak your word. Father, I confess that I come before you a sinner the same as any man with a grave responsibility. And I pray that it would be your words that would speak today, not mine. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, to my great joy today, we are going to be returning to the book of James, where we've now got as far as chapter 4. For those of us who are tempting eternal damnation by not bringing their Bibles to church, I'm going to have the text on the overhead in a moment. And by the way, do you like the way that I've chosen the overhead to match my shirt? <laughs> it's rather good. Um, but as for the rest of you marvellous saints, please will you turn to the book of James chapter 4, and we're going to start reading in verse 7. Uh, in the New King James Version that I've been using, this section is helpfully head, headed up, Humility Cures Worldliness. And uh, John MacArthur, he speaks of this passage as being one of the clearest calls to salvation in all of Scripture. And that's quite a reputation to live up to. As for its truthfulness, you will have to judge for yourselves, but there is certainly truth in God's Word for us today. Now, I'll be very honest with you. Sometimes when I hear the preacher start to talk about salvation, my mind will wander off to matters of deep meaning, such as fishing or the latest cordless drill. After all, I'm saved already, so his message must be for those people who around me might not be saved. Oh, oh, quickly, I must have a quick prayer for those people around me and then I can go back to my daydream. Mm. I want to encourage you not to emulate my poor example because James's message has ongoing relevance for the saved person as much as the unsaved. We always need reminders of the basics because they are the strong foundations of our faith. So, reading then from James 4, starting with verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be torn to, turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. When we see that word, therefore, we have to know that there is a link to a previous argument. In verse 6, which we studied last time, we read, But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now then, who in their right mind would want to encourage God's resistance? Surely life is difficult enough without the active opposition of God? Yes? Does it make sense? Do you agree? Therefore, says James, submit to God. It's obvious. Repent of your sin and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Now we all know and love the three-point sermon because we know that at point number three, it will soon be time to go home for lunch. However, James has thoughtfully included no less than ten points in this passage. Maybe they liked that many points back then, or they weren't so hungry. But what we do know about these commandments is that grammatically they were written in a thing called the Greek aorist imperative. There you go. Now, to try to explain this, let me tell you that the second job I ever had was with a company who specialized in re-enameling baths with a very clever kind of paint. My boss back then, who was trying to motivate a spotty youth, was uh, giving me this piece of advice. And he said, never put off till tomorrow what you should do today, because you might enjoy doing it so much today that you'll want to do it again tomorrow. <laughs> well, the aorist imperative is a bit like that, actually, because it's used in a command to show either instantaneous action or action that is to begin at once. So James wants us to know. Hang on, let's take a bit of a step backwards here, because James is writing under the influence of who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God wants us to know that we should act on these words tomorrow. Or next week, or next month, or maybe in a few years. Um, perhaps when I'm not so busy. Yeah? No, of course not. We are called to move on His advice right now, immediately. And since this advice comes directly from God, we can be sure that it is good advice. And it is worth acting on. Let's try to bear this in mind as we consider today's text. Listen to me, please. Do it now. Don't delay, because blessings await you. Whether this message comes to you as a non-believer, wavering on whether to follow Jesus, or as a believer who is seeking to have a more Christ-like life, I beg you, do these things now. And know that this will just be a beginning because we must continue to do these things through the whole of our lives. They aren't just one-offs or rituals for specific occasions, but they are intended to be part of the Christian's everyday life. Let's bear in mind also that these ten imperatives are not a special formula for salvation. This is no food-in-a-minute recipe to gain access to God. They are in no special order as well but their individual and collective weight is not diminished in any way. That salvation that we gain 
by God's grace, is something no man can fathom or reduce to a formula. What James is going to show us today is nothing more than the practical things that we must do as part of our work, as our part in the work of sanctification. As for the other party in that work, well, praise God, we know that he will be faithful to complete that work of sanctification he has planned for us. So remember that promise that he gives us in Philippians 1.6, that he who has begun a work, good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God does good work that brings us closer and closer to the likeness of Christ while here on earth. But he does require our active participation in the process. We will see in this passage how James is describing the way that we will go about that, really in very basic terms. So without wasting any more time, let's start to look at these ten imperatives. Therefore, submit to God. Submission is not a position, it's not a word that has popular support in the world today because you must be proud of yourself. You must box above your weight. You must hold your head up high. And if, uh, if you're a bit more modern, you might like to ask, well, who's the daddy? Yeah? Okay, well, there's heaps and heaps of sayings like this that leave us with a feeling that uh, submission is somehow a little bit weak and that maybe we're lacking in character if we bend to anyone. The truth is that when we apply these attitudes to our relationship with God or our fellow man, well, we're just putting the focus on the wrong person, okay? It's us and not him, and it's us and not them. Focus on ourselves is called pride, and it will separate us from God and those around us if we do not tame it. And this is why James has started right here. Submit to God and end that separation. In fact, of course, separation is a minor problem because without submitting to God, we are identified as his enemies. And that has very, very serious consequences. There is no position of us expecting God to do his thing somewhere over there and leaving us over here alone to do ours. Unless we are reconciled to him through accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are clearly on his radar as an enemy and he will act to deal with us. This submission thing, well, it can be grudging or it can be willing. I submit because you have forced me is a completely different proposition to I submit because I love you and respect your authority. It occurs to me that in light of my previous comments about consequences, that some of us might be thinking that we are being forced to submit through fear of punishment. You should know that neither scripture nor action supports this position. Knowledge of consequence is just intended as a warning so that we will never ever be in the position to say, Lord, you did not warn us. Because he has warned us. He is warning us today. We have been amply warned. It is true that given God's overwhelming power and knowledge, he could make us submit with the very least of effort on his part. But instead... He chose to show his loving call through action in providing his son Jesus as a sacrifice to pay the debt for our sins. I know that it is true that there is no better way for God to have demonstrated the purity of his motives. Can you guys think of anything? Because I can't think of anything bigger. 
Our Heavenly Father's power and knowledge are matched by a mighty love that gently calls us to kneel before Him for the very best of purposes. And Matthew 11, 28-30 illustrates this perfectly. We know this well. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's absolutely inevitable that we're going to have a yoke of some kind in our lives because we all labor in some way. I ask you, do you want the fruit of your labor to be a pile of stuff that your relatives are going to squabble over when you're gone? Or maybe you'd like some heavenly treasure, a harvest of souls and eternal life with God in heaven. If we want that latter, then we must submit to God because there is no other way to gain those things. Once we have this act of initial submission over, it could be said that this was the easiest part done because we must be continually submissive from there on and our human spirit is a notoriously wriggly thing. This brings to mind the matter of trust. Do I trust God to be my Lord in the difficult times as well as the good? Can I continue to be submissive when waiting on God for a difficult decision, when every part of my earthly character drives me to act now, to do something now, I've got to, I've got to start this, I can't wait. When an awful accident or an unexpected illness comes upon us or our relatives, will we blame God or will we hold on to Him as our Lord? Complete submission then is more than just bending the knee because it, it, it means handing over the reins of our hearts and complete trust for the whole of our lives. Eddie, you need to pay attention here because I'm going to ask you something in a moment. <laughs> Pardon? Pardon? Okay. Imagine that you're a railway wagon. Okay? Thomas the Tank Engine. Any kind of wagon. A flatbed, a flashy sleeper car or whatever. You can be as big or as small as you like. However, by yourself, you're effectively useless because you don't have the power to move all the tracks to keep you on the right path. Placed correctly on those steel rails and hitched to the locomotive, you will fulfill your potential. God is the locomotive and His plan for our lives attracts. Without His power and direction, we cannot do any useful work, but we also need to be correctly aligned with Him. We need to be properly on those tracks. Eddie, let's just say, from your fund of enormous experience, if we uh, hooked up a, just one wagon with just one wheel, you know, the flange was hanging on the outside of the track, what would happen? It would fall off. Okay? That's just like, that's just like us. Even, this is what submission is about. If we submit graciously and trustingly, then our wheels will lock on the track and that locomotive that locomotive of God will take us swiftly and directly to the final destination. If we try to ride that track with one wheel hanging off, well, then we can look forward to some derailments and dramatic accidents. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised when those things come along. In the end, submitting to God does not diminish us, as the world says, because it actually restores us to our intended design. 
which is that of created being in harmony with the Creator. It seems to me that if we are looking for perfection in position, then this must be the place. The act of submission is an important part of the next imperative because it places us as one of God's children under his protection. Therefore, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Of course, this begs the question, how can we not resist the devil if we are subject to God? They are the bitterest of enemies. If we are friends with the devil, then we are God's enemy. If we are God's child, then Satan will definitely attack us. There is no good reason to be the devil's friend, but there are many, many reasons to be God's friend. As Christians, our resistance cannot be questioned. It must happen. And as surely as we resist, we are promised that Satan might flee. Satan will flee. Yes, it's a promise. Yet many times we don't because of the flesh still at work in us. That spark of selfishness and disobedience that's fanned by the devil for his own ends. If we want to tame the flesh, we must take up this promise of God that we do have victory over Satan if we hold fast. However, we must be very clear on what he's fleeing from. It isn't us because we know that he is of angelic origin. And because we know he's an angel... He's much more powerful than us. Now, just as an example, if we have a look in Isaiah, we find that one angel, one, accounted for the lives of 185,000 men. Just like that. Wiped out. Okay? And so, we could never imagine that we could stand against the power of the devil on our own. It is only the power of God living us in us that he runs away from. Moreover, and I'm sure you know where we're going next. God gives us his armor for protection, as we read in Ephesians. And I'm sure this is a passage that all of us are familiar with. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. As I said, I'm sure you've heard this before, but there are some following pieces of information that are very important that maybe we haven't really thought about. Not only must we put on God's armor, but in addition to that, according to verse 18, we must always be praying, always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Isn't that interesting? So to resist the devil, not only must we be saved, exercise faith, speak the truth, and be steeped in the knowledge of Scripture, but we must pray continuously for ourselves and all other Christians. How much do you and I pray? <laughs> I can only speak for myself, myself and I say nowhere near enough. I'm so challenged by this. I must pray always. How about you? This is something we can do today. 
we can be an aorist imperative and start to pray today. I guarantee that it will change your life and the life of this church. There is another important following verse, which I've never noticed before. What is the point of us being able to resist the devil? Hmm? Is it just a little warm, fuzzy feeling inside? Might it be some kind of heavenly gold star in a tick? Well, no. Paul gives us the answer in verses 19 and 20 when he asks that the body continue praying for him specifically. That utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak. We should never forget that although Satan does want to separate Christians from God, there is something else that he wants even more. To prevent the gospel from being preached. To stop more of us from becoming children of God. We cannot ignore our great commission. It is our earthly purpose, after all, to go and make disciples of all nations. Isn't that typical of us? We are always looking inwards. Why is Satan persecuting me? Why am I suffering so much? Instead, like Paul, we should be looking outward and looking for ways to preach the gospel to those around us. This is the reason for resisting the devil. Not that we might be more comfortable, but that spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not hindered. This is the purpose we should pray for. There's a final note that I want to make on this subject. Scripture does not support the notion of war parties against Satan. If we study the passage in Ephesians that we've just read, we can see that the tools that we are given are of a defensive nature. And the great example that we have of Jesus' temptation in Matthew 4 does not demonstrate aggression at all, but it does show the defensive value of being steeped deeply in Scripture. The verse that we are studying today does not say, find Satan and beat him on the head and he will flee from you. You know, we're asking for trouble and wasting time if we go on a crusade against the devil. It is more than sufficient that God has given us the tools to ably defend ourselves as we go about the business given to us here on earth, which is to glorify God and preach His good news. Therefore, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. It might seem unnecessary to be commanded to draw near to God. After all, if we have submitted to Him, then surely it follows that we must be near Him. Can I suggest that this does not logically follow? For example, all of us here are subject to the laws of New Zealand, whose seat is in the beehive in Wellington. But we don't always scrupulously obey those laws to the letter. We continue to hold our own views and live our lives in our own way because we think we know better and we want to assert our independence. Unfortunately, we also do this with God because, like the beehive, we perceive Him to be far away and not able to watch us at all times. So we think that we can get away with a little bit of disobedience. And this is why we actively have to work on drawing near to Him. 
In practical terms, this means developing our relationship with him. In Old Testament times, this term of drawing near generally meant approaching God sincerely and humbly with a penitent heart. And I can't see any reason why this description should change. So what are the, some of the things we should be doing in approaching God? Can I propose that a good place to start is worship? Because that is acknowledging the power and majesty of God. In this context, what do we mean about worship? Well, it can certainly be correctly said that our worship should include everything we do. However, for this purpose, I'd like to suggest Wayne Grudem's definition of worship, which is, worship is the activity of glorifying God in His presence with our voices and our hearts. So we can draw near to God both privately and corporately in song, praise, and prayer. But we need to be careful that this never becomes ritual. Our worship cannot be empty because God, He can see everything in our hearts. And David, when he's counseling his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles, he says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. We should also spend time regularly thinking through our sins and asking God's forgiveness. I have this little mental picture of each sin that we commit being like a single brick that adds to a wall that's built up between us and God. If we don't confess, those bricks just add up and it grows and grows and it grows. How do I get rid of it? Well, confession and repentance will just blow that wall away as though it were never there. I'm not suggesting that in any way our sins will compromise our salvation, but they do affect our closeness to God and hence the work of sanctification. And Scripture tells us that sin will also affect our heavenly reward. So let's be sure to deal with that sin promptly so that nothing gets in the way of our relationship with Him. The beautiful thing is that any distance between us isn't of God's making. I hope that nobody here will be offended if I paraphrase this verse by saying, draw near to God and you will find that He has never moved away. It's us that move away from Him. For the truth is that in Him we live and move and we have our being. Finally, it may sound like an afterthought, and I hate to disappoint you, but that finally is not the end of the sermon. It's an obvious fact that studying and memorizing God's Word is going to reveal His character and plan for our lives in a way that draws us together. Likewise, a disciplined prayer life will be one of the keys to a close relationship with God. I suppose it's a measure of their power that leaves these two facts so starkly not requiring any further explanation. But if we don't do them, if we fail to do these, our walk as a Christian will be severely crippled. Let's move on now to the next of James's commands. Therefore, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Now it might seem that I've just dealt with this command because I've been talking about confessing sin, 
But the Greek tells us that James is specifically addressing non-believers in this instance. And further, his use of the terms hands is symbolic specifically of things that we do. Now, since he's talking to non-believers, all of those who are believers here can now go to their happy place. No, I'm glad to hear it. I believe that any time we hear the gospel message, we ought to take it as an opportunity for self-evaluation. This is the standard. How do I measure up? What can I pray about? What can I do? What can I do to repent that will bring me closer to God? It's good for us believers to be reminded that we are still sinners and that it is only by the grace of God through Christ that we have been forgiven. In this case, we ought to be thinking through our actions. And we all know what actions speak louder than. As Christians, we need to be scrupulous about what we do, both in public and in private. In public, we cannot be seen to be saying one thing and doing another, because then we will justly own the name hypocrite. Okay? And that's a term that we know the world just loves to hang on us. What chance do we then have of proclaiming the gospel? And worse, God is mocked, not glorified. In some ways, I think holy actions performed in private are even worse than those performed in public because they expose the double standard in our lives. We are deluded in our salvation if we believe that we can behave like Christians in public, but heathens when we are alone. In that case, if we find that we're like that, then we must urgently seek the counsel of those whose lives show the power of the Holy Spirit. We must go and ask a brother or sister to help us. I want to say at this point, neither James nor I am endorsing salvation by works. Christians must do good deeds for three reasons. Because we're told to, because we have to, and because we want to. Firstly, God demands a certain standard of behavior from his children, which is just the same as any earthly parent. Secondly, good deeds must be the natural expression of the new nature that God has placed in us. I mean, a palm tree is not suddenly going to produce hydraulic jacks, is it? And if you think a coconut would hurt when it landed on your head, try a hydraulic jack. Our fruit, our fruit signifies our fundamentals. Lastly, works are an expression of the gratitude in our hearts for the gift we have been given in Christ. When we recognize the absolute enormity of what we've been given, we cannot help but do but God's work. So that's where believers sit. What about the person who might be listening here quietly who isn't a believer? Well, James is making a call to you is making a call to you today. Therefore cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. As we sit here today, we are all dying. That is a certainty. The minutes that I have stood here today preaching have brought us that much closer to the end of our lives. That's something we generally don't like to think about because it is painful and frightening. We don't know when or how it might happen, 
And most of all, we don't know what will happen next. But God does. God knows us completely. He knew us before we were born, and He can tell how many hairs we have on our heads. And moreover, God has made a plan specifically for each one of us. The problem for mankind is this. There is only one God, but in a deep mystery that we do not understand, He is manifest in three parts. In His nature, God is holy and righteous. He is perfect. In that perfection, He cannot tolerate sin in any way. Now consider man. God created us to have a very different existence to the one we now have. Can you imagine a world where we were in harmony with everything? No disease, no suffering, no struggle. Think about what it would be like to share that space with God in the cool of the day. Maybe just to go and talk to God. Can you imagine how marvelous that would be? That is what we had. That is what we were created to do. But instead, we chose to disobey God's specific instruction and sin. At that instant, everything changed and we lost all that we were intended to have. God had no choice. As much as it must have pained him, he could not be inconsistent to his nature. You know, this is a bit of an aside. We talk about God being able to do anything. Well, that isn't actually true. Because God cannot do anything that is inconsistent with his nature. And, for example, he cannot sin. And that ought to reassure us because it would be terrible to imagine God, with all the power he has, suddenly deciding to do something unpleasant to us just on a whim. At the moment of sinning, we created a debt that we were unable to repay because the imperfect is unable by nature to make itself perfect again. So from that time on, man was separated from God with no way to get back. What a really, truly hopeless place to be. When we die in that place, the only possibility is to face eternal punishment for our sin. But God made a way. In the same scale that God is mighty and terrible in His holy, holiness and righteousness, he is enormously loving and merciful. He determined to restore our relationship to Him, although it was at the most painful personal cost. He sent His only Son, Jesus, to be born as a man, and then to die on a cross. In doing this, Jesus did the thing that we could not. He paid the debt for every man's sin. He opened the way for all mankind to be forgiven once and for all for their sin, and to look forward to eternity in heaven with God. This is the gift that we are offered, one we do not deserve. To accept it is simple. Firstly, we have to acknowledge our debt, to put our hands up and say, Yes, Lord, I am a sinner. I can see what I owe. I know that I am wrong, and I will try not to do these things again. And then we must recognize Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We must submit to Him and set our lives to follow him. What a tiny price to pay for a supreme gift. This is where James has brought us today. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. If we want to please God and be reconciled to Him, we must stop our hands from sinning, from doing things wrong, and our hearts from thinking wrongly against God. Our attitudes must change towards things above. A call to lament and mourn and be gloomy must not be mistaken for a requirement to lead a miserable life. It is not. But at that point where we recognize the weight of our offense to God, no happiness can be possible or appropriate. Surely it is right to recognize how we have offended God, to acknowledge our debt to Him and confess our sin. That can never be a moment for rejoicing. But rejoicing will come, thanks be to God, when we turn our hearts to Him. He will lift us up. So what will be your response today? For both believer and non-believer, once again, God's Word has shown us that we have things to think about and things to do. What are you going to do? Not the person sitting next to you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do now, this instant? If you are a Christian, what are you going to do differently starting today? If you are not a Christian, this is my most earnest prayer. If you have heard God's message of life today and you want to become a Christian, then do not put it off. Find Calvin or one of the elders or myself after the service and we will pray with you. <laughs> and we will be very joyful. And if you think we are joyful, I can tell you that the whole of heaven will be rejoicing. They are waiting with great anticipation for your decision. Let us pray. Father, I don't know how to put into words what we've seen today. Because it's powerful, Lord. It has certainly moved me. I pray that it has moved everybody in this building. And Lord, that we might go out of this place and be changed. We might be changed to act for you, to bring about your kingdom here, to demonstrate your glory, Lord, that we wouldn't be ineffectual or weak, but then in our submission to you, we would be made strong for you and by you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.